of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. And we are live with Jay Disberger, valedictorian uh, extraordinaire. Was that you on K-State University? Were you, were you, was that you or is that somebody else? Yes, I was the one who gave the speech for the graduating class there. I did, I did do that. So yeah, we'll ask you about that. And now f- famous or infamous or mildly famous because... Jay was featured in a Dave Ramsey rant that has since gone viral on Twitter and YouTube, probably something like 10 million views between all of these various people picking it up from the guy Marvin Bontrager in Twitter. I think he's had 4 million views. I think David McKnight, who we first kind of learned about this a week ago, he's a friend of mine. He had about 100 plus thousand views. So this clip from Dave Ramsey is sweeping the country. And uh, before we get to the clip, I want to describe your background. What what brought you to call Dave Ramsey's show? So I released an episode on the Hopefield Financial Podcast back in September. Title starts, Dave Ramsey is Wrong. I was a huge Dave Ramsey fan for the longest time. And I remember I after graduating, I wanted to try to understand retirement because one of Dave's best bits of advice is don't invest in anything you don't understand. I I still firmly believe in that advice. And I don't believe that we should invest in a plan that we don't understand. I firmly believe that you need to begin your planning with the end in mind. So I started looking at, well, if I'm saving for retirement, how do I turn that nest egg into an income? And that led me down the rabbit holes of safe withdrawal rates, different withdrawal strategies. And I was looking through Dave's material, trying to find information on it for years. And eventually stumbled across the 8% advice and him saying asset allocation theory is just a theory and to ignore it. And started trying to set up my own study to figure out safe withdrawal rate stuff myself. Found that Dave was wrong using assumptions that made good sense to me and to the point that it was dangerous. Well, as a part of my podcast, as, as I had a platform that was public, I was like, well, maybe I could put something out there and try to make a persuasive argument to change Dave's mind because I love a lot of the other stuff that he does. There's a lot of excellent advice that Dave gives that has genuinely helped millions of people. But this stumbling block here can lead listeners to going broke in retirement. So for the good of him, the good of his legacy, and the good of his listeners, I wanted to try to put something out there to change his mind. Uh, The video did okay. And thinking about it thereafter, watching, uh, there were two clips he had after I put my video out that he got pretty snippy about it. Uh, I let things simmer down. I was like, well, maybe I can call him and ask him some questions that leads him to thinking about it and coming to the conclusion himself. So I didn't have anything to lose. I thought I'd give it a try. And it it led to that rant. <laughs> so break down what exactly was the rant. So you call up and you say what? 
So I say that I am wanting to know if I can ease up on baby step four. And for those who don't follow Ramsey stuff, baby step four is invest 15% of your take-home pay into retirement accounts. I wanted to ease up on that so I could put more toward baby step six, pay off your home early. That was the goal that mattered to me. Now, because this involves retirement stuff, and it's a genuine question I had, uh, I, I could look at my current balance in, in my retirement nest egg, what I've saved so far. I mentioned it on the show. I've got 120000 across my retirement accounts right now. If I left it alone and didn't add anything to it, would I be able to retire with dignity? Depending on the, the projection that you do, the portfolio, the, the growth that you use for the projection and the safe withdrawal rate, you can come to different conclusions. You can say, yes, you are firmly at coasting financial independence, Jay, and you probably don't need to put the full 15% in there for baby step four. Or you can go more conservative with the safe withdrawal rate and say, no, you should probably keep investing to make sure that you're going to be able to retire with dignity and take a more conservative side to it. So in order to be logically consistent in answering my question and other questions that we could dig into, I had a couple layers to it. Dave would either need to ease up on the aggressive 8% safe withdrawal rate advice in order to, to lean into the baby step or- Which sounds the to, most, that sounds like the most sensible thing because I've right. never heard of an 8% withdrawal rate. Other than no, in the and, 90s when the market was like consistently hot, which is maybe right. where he gets it from. Maybe he's just stuck in the 90s. But he started in the 90s, didn't he? So that's what I've thought. My interpretation of that, I started in the 2000s. So around 2000, 1999. So I saw people destroyed by that 8% advice. Meaning mm. me, my, my father uh, took money from a pension. So this is personal. This is very real to me. I didn't, I mean, he started what, 1992 with the show. So if you were compounding from 92 to 2000 before the crash from 2000, to 2002, probably you could have done that. But I started around 1999 in bank, you know, I, I was a uh, intern for a bank and I saw what happened to my parents where they lost 40% of their what once was a guaranteed pension. They rolled it over to a Vanguard IRA. So they bought index funds. They did what Kiplinger said. They lost 40, 50% of everything they had of my father's $100,000 nest egg. That 100 or 120 became about 40. Then he got disabled, had medical bills. And because they were applying then Larry Burkett, who was like the Dave Ramsey, before there was Dave Ramsey, there was Larry Burkett, who followed a lot of the similar kind of trajectories. They mentioned, met somebody at church. They said, cancel your insurances because you don't need. Now, although Dave says buy term insurance, generally, um, whatever, they, had they didn't have money. So they were trying to save, get out of debt. They cashed their insurances out, which is a bad idea. And... Then my father got disabled, so he wasn't able to get insurance anymore. Then they had 90,000 credit card debt because they had to pay medical bills. So they got totally wiped out and became penniless. And that kind of prompted me to get into the financial industry to save people from my parents. So I think this 8%, 4%, this is not uh, as evidenced in the video, nerds in their mother's basement. <laughs> this is preventing mass financial ruin. And there are people mm. over the years, by the way, 
Name, I mean, there's somebody that I'm thinking of right now that I can't reveal who they are, who followed, they did financial peace, they did all the steps, the guy cashed out his life insurance, cashed out his disability, now they have bone cancer, limited lifespan, no money, no insurance, the wife will will get nothing after the husband dies because they followed this advice. Now, was that his real advice? No, I get it. You could say, well, they probably wouldn't have told them to cash out their life insurance, but that's how they interpreted the decision. And so some of these things, like buy term only and invest the difference, well, that only works if you are insurable and can buy 20-year term that would replace your income. So there's nuance that's needed. And it's not being about being a geek. So I loved your call. But before we get more into the call from Ramsey, because I want to mention George Camel. He smacked down George Camel, disrespectful to his co-host. I, I mean, I get it because I've been doing a radio show in New York on the same station, by the way, as Ramsey for years. Met him. He was a lovely guy. I was at the at the party for launching him on WR in 2010. Is is uh, New York? It was at the 2010 or 2013. So met him. He was a great guy. Shook my hand. Um, so no disrespect here um, at all. You know he's a legend in personal finance, but uh, but I, I was I found the whole interaction where he threw George under the bus kind of funny, and he almost self destructed, and his daughter's trying to hold him back. So before we get into that, what about people say you're just cloud chasing? You are just glomming off of Dave Ramsey to build the following. Not, I don't want to be disrespectful to you, but I'm sure people think about that. I've, I've seen comments on YouTube saying that, oh, it's someone else who's either just trying to grift off of Dave Ramsey's fame to make money or sell a scam. But I, I really don't have too much other than my time that I sell at the moment. Um, the, the, the thing that I think is missed in that is I am a huge Dave Ramsey fan since I was a teenager. I follow him and I care about him and his listeners. I was the guy who would tell all my friends about Dave Ramsey's plan and say, I'm going to get through college debt free. This is this is the way to go. I would defend Dave on things where I thought he was wrong. And if I didn't understand something, I would take his word for it at face value. I was that diehard of a, a Ramsey fan. And when I discovered that he was off base on the safe withdrawal rate stuff, and I couldn't deny it because the the math behind the Trinity study and everything there with an associated that's been developed since then is sound. I, I, I was kind of taken aback by how dangerous this could be. So my mission is genuinely to change Dave Ramsey's mind. It's still my mission and do it in a way that's charitable, do it in a way that I, I didn't expect this to blow up and go viral also, because I've heard him talk about this at least seven or eight times on the radio show before I called in and none of those clips went as viral as this. So, uh, you know, I wanted to help him in that way. And that might seem like silly or overly optimistic, but you said you met him and he's a nice guy. I've heard him do interviews where he comes across as very relaxed and charitable. One, not too long ago. It's just not even a week old. So I was hoping for a conversation like that. 
And the reason why I cited George and the article that used to be on his website was because I figured if I was looking at sources from just Ramsey Solutions, he would be more charitable about them or ask more questions about them or be a little less explosive when the topic came up to discuss safe withdrawal rates. I put a lot of thought into trying to make a good effort to have a productive conversation on the phone. Uh, I think the the evidence that people use against me on the, the clout front beyond my, my claim there is that I recorded the interaction, that I have, have the, the mic audio, I have a video of when I was calling him. I wanted to, if I was able to have a good productive conversation, be able to share it with the world on my show and say, look at the progress that's been made so far. I was not expecting it to be a rant. And it wasn't until it went on Twitter when I started seeing things blow up and that that first post of the clip went from 150 to 300,000 views and then up to the millions. I was like, ah, I think I need to get my side of the story out there. It's going to be somewhat public anyway. Some people know I was planning on calling, so I might as well put it out there and try to direct the viral attention to the mission of changing Dave's mind with with a charitable disposition. That That's really my whole role and what's been going on here. And the other thing, and and I thought, man, this guy's cloud chasing because, you know, he's trying to glom on, no offense. But the first time I saw you on uh, McKnight last night, I'm like, we got to get this guy on. And what was interesting is I went to your YouTube. You have like 600 something subscribers. Now you have 712. So, right. so from what I've seen, your audience has grown 100. <laughs> So it's not like you've really, I mean, you got 3,600 views on the Dave Ramsey's Wrong from two months ago, probably, you know, but it's not like you weren't the guy who was the PhD from Twitter who really made it viral. Right. Who I heard there's actually a story of why that's viral, which I only heard from you. Yeah, why did that go viral? Because- if some obscure friend of David McKnight's, like a PhD guy, I, I don't even understand. How did that go viral? You had a great explanation for that. So I had, uh, I, I don't know if I should name him or not, uh, a financial advisor on Twitter who I ran into early on when this started blowing up. And I, I connected with him. He gave me a call. We talked about the matter in 45 minutes. He explained it to me and said, you see, Dave Ramsey blocks everyone on Twitter who disagrees with him. Hmm. And because he blocks everyone who disagrees with him, they can't see what he's putting out there and he can't see what they're putting out there. And, and the, those who would want to troll him on his account no longer have the opportunity to do that. And I think that's a branding decision. It's a decision. I can't say what my thoughts on it. I haven't really dug to it too much into it, but you have a whole lot of people on financial Twitter who have been somewhat blind to what Dave Ramsey's been saying on the topic of safe withdrawal rates for years. And their primary place for discussing these matters is Twitter. But there's a wall between them and Dave on Twitter. So when this clip gets posted on the side where Dave isn't, it catches like wildfire. And nobody can believe that this is what's been said or Why, has been said in the past. Why? Because if, if he wasn't blocked, I don't get that. If he, So this guy's name is Marvin Bontrager, PhD. 
Um, and he was obscure up until this. Now he has 2,000 followers. So this guy isn't like, whoa, he's not cloud chasing either. He was just like, oh, this is a ridiculous rant. And he posted the whole rant. And so I don't, I still don't get that. Why did, th so because he blocks everyone who disagrees with him, mm -hmm. then they can't suppress it? Or, so are they, I, so are they paying money ignorance. to suppress the, that, that actually is, I think the interesting, I thought maybe they were paying money to suppress it on these platforms. I think it's, it's less that, and I think it's just people were not aware of the message that he had on safe withdrawal rates at all. Yeah, because I wasn't if, really, if, to be honest. Yeah. I, if you I, don't watch his show on the regular in the last five years, I didn't find anything really on safe withdrawal rates until like four or five years ago on a show. And if you watch my first episode back in September, the oldest clip I have, I think is from four years ago. And, you know, Twitter was around then and he probably had established that what I'll call the invisible wall between him and the, the financial Twitter world. So if, if those on financial Twitter aren't watching his show, they're not aware of it. If they can't see what he's posting on Twitter, they're not aware of it. Oh, through, I got it. So either. this was yeah. their access to mm -hmm. Ramsey. Interestingly enough, um, I like his Entree Leadership podcast better than the financial one. But um, yeah, I guess I don't, I mean, other than hearing clips here or there, I don't really see much of him anymore. And this kind of brought him to the forefront. But I see him a lot on Facebook. I don't know. I, I see him all the time on Facebook, but I think someone runs his social media on Facebook, but you know, I don't know, so I can't speak to it. So he, so this rant goes on, and you brought up that George Camel, who's the new, the guy before George Camel was Chris Hogan, mm -hmm. and then he got ousted because of some things, whatever. Um, we've had Chris Hogan on the show before when he wrote his book, it was a nice guy. Um, so I don't know the, whatever the personal thing, but he, he got kind of deposed and then George kind of filled his place as the millennial, I guess, living in his mother's basement. I doubt he really lives in his mother's basement, sort of the heir to the Ramsey throne. So they don't appear nepotistic, I guess. But so George, what has happened? So George Campbell's his like, I guess his vice president co-host. What do you call George? I, I I would call George a Ramsey personality. I believe Dave's intent, and I only know this because I heard him talk about it with Graham Stephan on an interview. Uh, and that's the one that's that's not even a week old. He said that in order to try to make sure that the legacy of Ramsey exists, he wanted to pass down, not from one person to one person, because that often leads in failure. He wanted to pass down the brand from Dave Ramsey to Ramsey with a variety of personalities. So you you have multiple people who fill in and host the show. And the goal here is somewhat his exit strategy is one day he's not going to be around to run the show. And what happens to all the people who work for him? So George is part of that plan. George is one of his uh, more popular personalities who's been around longer than those who are, are on there now, if, if I remember right. But he had his own YouTube channel still under the Ramsey brand. And that's where he posted the video that I was making reference to when I made my call. 
So George, uh, heir apparent or whatever, millennial heir, I guess. Rachel, they, so you, you, you ask your question about 8% versus 4%. He goes off. He goes ballistic. Now, I will tell you, to be fair, I'm a passionate guy like he is. So I'm a little more made of the same stuff. So I get his passion. And I get if, you know, when you're running a company, you don't know everything your employees are doing. And when you see something that kind of ticks you off, you go a little like, what the heck am I putting my name in? I have no problem with his initial reaction. I really don't. Now, I don't agree with his theory of 8%. That's actually, the math is more of what I have a problem. Because, you know, I have other people in my organization, you can't control what people believe, think. And then it's like, when I go to my headquarters and I see, you know, piece of litter on the sidewalk, I flip out. I'm like, oh, you can't pick that up. You know, that's the type of guy he is, I think. So I don't mind that, you know, oh, what the heck did George do? You know? Because that's his mission. And I guess there's a part that I agree with, right? He's valuing, I guess you would call it message, uh, a unified message. So I appreciate that. I even thought Rachel, his daughter, she starts saying, you don't mean that. Talk, break down Rachel's response. Because Rachel was funny. She was really trying to, she saw what was happening. She saw the train wreck. So break the that down. The thing that I like most about what Rachel said was, why is that stupid? Why is the the lower safe withdrawal rate stupid? That's the kind of question that can lead to learning and growing on this topic here. It's the kind of question that I wanted to be engaging with with this conversation. And it was her effort to try to get Dave to, instead of blowing up at it, and I guess just, at least this is my interpretation, she she didn't want him to just be going off on it and calling it names, wanted to give some some solid explanation. I don't know where she stands on the issue. She didn't really get to give her side of it. I know people speculate that she agrees with 8% or, or the 4% side, but don't really know. She did a great job trying to guide him to to a place closer to where my question was. And one of the things Rachel's really good at doing from what I've listened to her is is hearing people out and trying to reach them where they are and trying to see both sides of a story and and not do any name calling but be a little bit more kind and persuasive in in her approach so she's doing this and mm-hmm. then he just starts going off on super nerds geeks living in their mother's basements and I'm even okay with that cuz it's radio shtick it's ranting. But the biggest problem I have is the destructive nature that he really believes the 8% rule. That's really what I, I can forgive passion. I'm a passionate guy, right, Jim? I, I'm, I can forgive, um, he cares about people. Um, I think fundamentally, the good point that he brought up is that the financial industry at large, profits on the idea that people will be poor and creating this sort of guilt-ridden thing that then becomes this spiral so people never save because they think it's hopeless. That is a very valid 
critique of the financial industry. Where I have a problem is I'm in the financial industry. He also sells leads to the financial industry through his Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro program. So he's not against the financial industry. They train financial advisors in their methods. They give leads of Ramsey listeners to advisors. So I don't like demonizing the whole industry as nerds who live in their mother's basement, let alone he's demonizing George, who kind of looks like a millennial nerd who could live in his mother's basement, but probably is a very successful man who doesn't. But it, it's it. Um, I more find the 4% rule versus 8% rule. Then we're going to go into the math behind why the 4% rule is the 4% rule. And the 8% rule is like idiotic and makes zero sense at all to kind of be like Dave. Like that's dumb. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. So, and I think it's actually destructive financial advice. And I've seen many people have gone to financial peace universities at churches and their lives were destroyed because they followed this advice to a T. I don't think that's his intention I don't think if you're saving 50, 15% of your after home, I think his point was if you are diligently saving 15% over the next 30 years, you will not be a financial failure because that one habit alone will transform everything else you do. And I would agree with that, that if there's one habit you do, it's that savings rate. And if your savings rate is 15%, you do that religiously for 30 years, you will be a financial success. Your numbers, and it was very interesting, by the way, the dialogue after. This is why I think this is such a viral clip. He did impart good wisdom, but he was so, you know, thinking with his ego that he just got lost. They had a clip, which I really liked, about what I call wealth eroding factors. Foundational, what I do as a financial planner is... You can set out a plan, right? You do it at Hope Filled Financial Coaching. I do it at our firm. Um, you can set out a plan and it will never work out exactly as you have planned. And that is the wrong spirit of planning. You're not planning to because the future is inherently unknowable. Only thing you can control is your savings rate. You can't control the outcome. That was the smart thing that I think he was getting at. And let's not give people an unhopeful viewpoint. But then he, he got on this little tangent about the yellow brick road. Yes. And I actually think that was some of the greatest good shtick because that is how financial life works out, right? You have a yellow brick road. You start out, you and your wife, newly married, you have a baby. I don't know how long you've been married, but you look like a young guy. And you're starting out. And you save 120 grand. And what he's trying to say is you're going to go through all these, uh, what do you say? The monkeys, the, 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 the monkey, flying monkeys, the flying monkeys are going to steal your life and you're going to get, you're going to have issues. You, you might uh, get disabled. You might get, um, you know, there's divorce causes people lose half their wealth. There's taxes. There's law. There's all these challenges. I call wealth eroding factors, inflation, taxation. But he was sort of like, but if you keep going, you're going to end up. And and Rachel really wasn't getting what he was throwing down because she's been blessed to be a princess of this financial dynasty. And she's she's a wonderful person. But 
he he must have had his teeth kicked in many times because he was sort of like, you will have the marauders against your wealth. You will have those wealth eroding factors and sort of keep pressing on. So it was funny. Your question, honest question, his rant, really self-destructive a little bit, but good, good radio. But then the end, he imparted a lot of good wisdom. So it was like a very, I think the clip was viral because of all of those things. And people were like, did he just say that? And it was like watching a train wreck. And then even in the midst, you must have thought, he must have thought, how do I backtrack? Because his last minute or two was really radio gold, I think, on the Wizard of Oz and, and the, the Wizard of Oz analogy, liking it to a financial journey. But so so he's correcting, he was course correcting. He was sort of saying it's not about the 4% rule. And even way he was saying it's not about the 8% rule, it's about the savings rate. And if you're doing all these things diligently, you will be successful. But I want to go into the 4% rule because it is so valuable. And the the geeks and the super nerds who don't live in their mother's basement, they're guys like uh, Wade Fowle, Blanchett, all these various heavyweights, William Bangin of the Trinity study. Um, the 4% rule is based on numbers. And you could you could debate four versus five, four versus 1.9 or three, but eight is just financially destructive. So any comments more on the video before we move on to the 4% rule? That's a good question. I think what surprised me the most was how quickly he went off. You you mentioned you weren't surprised by that. It was a passion, right? I was hoping for a charitable conversation that could be a little bit more calm and productive. I felt like I had failed when when he blew up. And I didn't know how to circle back around to digging into the question and getting it answered given the way that I had posted it and hoping that it would lead to to good healthy conversation. I and both happy and sad that it went as viral as it did. I, I, I haven't enjoyed the, the bulk of the negativity that I've seen about it that's just bashing for the sake of bashing. What I'm grateful for, though, is how much good, healthy conversation has come about it. And those who have seen it and said, I honestly don't know why Dave is wrong, and this is a nice segue to talking about the 4% rule, because there are people in the communities out there who are like, well, let me explain to you how this math works, what sequence of returns risk is, and what is being left out of the equation when when Dave says 12 minus 4 equals 8. Hmm. Yeah, 12 minus 4 equals 8. That That sounds so simple, right? So easy to make 12% on a mutual fund. Not. <laughs> so easy to make 12% in the market. Not. Um, so we'll go into all of these topics and more. But yeah, I mean, just so you know, people, um, it, I'm on the hopefilledfinancial.com. Jay is proud of his Dave Ramsey certificate. He's not bashing Dave Ramsey. We are not. I don't even fault... Get a rose when you're recording all the time, it's stressful. Mm. And when you're the guy, it's just like 
and you're running a business. And I don't think he's a hands-off guy, you know. You know, then you hear, okay, somebody's trashing my legacy of hope that I want to build in other people, you know. Um, then and maybe he has doubts, is George is George the rightful heir? Right? That's hard. You know, they made they they groomed Chris Hogan and now they're grooming this guy. And maybe he's having doubts about George. I don't think it was right necessarily to throw him under the bus, but uh, you know, it's interesting. So, and then I want to hear about your background. It seems you have like you have an interesting background. Um, because when I Googled you, then I, I saw you were valedictorian at K-State, homeschooled. You saved 120 grand um as a young man, which is is quite a success. All of those things could be in itself its own show. And you would credit that, I assume, with Dave Ramsey's knowledge, 90% of that. A lot of the success and blessing that I have financially, I do credit toward what I learned from Dave Ramsey and his foundation's curriculum. I was able to make it through school debt-free because I had hope that I could do it. And I, I worked my my rear end off in order to do that and still managed to get good enough grades, as, as you saw, to give the graduation speech for the College of Engineering at Kansas State University. And the, the savings thereafter, the, the ability to build wealth is all the more enhanced because I didn't have a crippling amount of student loan debt uh, and that I was largely following the the, the core mission that Dave had set me off on as a role model. Yeah, it's it's uh it's quite interesting. So yeah, you're not coming as a critic trying to cloud chase. So that's a no. that's a that's a critical point. So let's talk about the 8% rule, the 4% rule versus the 8%. And let's use your number of 120 grand. I have a I have a calculator called the buy term and save the difference calculator that I built. Um, I didn't build it. You know, somebody else built it, but, but I build out uh, scenarios for clients based on this software that has it. So 120 grand. So let's use your, your proposal. Kind of, you were, you were trying to have a dialogue with, with Dave. Let's have that dialogue now. So 120 grand. What is your time horizon? How many years you want to invest? So I'm I'm turning 30 here within a week. And I would like to retire right around age 60. And in following Dave's advice, he says invest 15% throughout that time, throughout the accumulation phase, right? I was going to say, well, maybe I can dial it back to six. And if I can invest 6% of my take-home pay, I'll probably be okay. And if he didn't like that, I could also say, and this this is true, I have a uh, 200% match on the first 6% I put into my 401k. That, that's been instrumental in helping me build a, a, a strong nest egg right now. So if I could do that, then maybe I could take the difference of that 15% and the 6% and apply that toward my mortgage. I have an outstanding mortgage of uh, just shy of 180000 right now and get that paid off sooner because I'd much rather lower my burn rate that's necessary to keep a roof over my head and reduce the number of hours that I work and enjoy more time playing with, with my son or soon to be two sons. So if I'm going, so you got 120 grand, let's assume, I don't want to tell people what you make. 
let's assume you make a hundred grand a year and you get you put in six percent, six thousand, they match you six thousand over thirty years. Assuming a twelve point five nine rate of return, like Ramsey talks about, but I would I want to go into challenging that. That was the rate of return over the 30 years starting in 1984, which is why I think he uses 12. I figured out why he uses 12. And doing that, you would accrue 4.983 million. And is that in today's money? Um, that is in today's money. I didn't nice. put inflation in just to be simple because the human mind can't really calculate inflation. So I think I got where he got his number. 1984, you go fast forward 30 years, that was 12.59 return. Interestingly enough, the difference between the average return and the net, not counting fees, not counting taxes, but just the fact that the mathematical average, this is an important thing, Mathematical averages do not equal what you receive as a return. Just case in point, if you start out with 100 grand, you lose 50%. You need 100% to break even. You broke even, but your mathematical return over the two years is 25%. The real return would have been 10.66, which makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't include... The fee to use a Ramsey SmartVestor Pro. Um, we didn't include taxes. Interesting enough, if you take out the eroding factors, this this, um, and I believe in having investment management guidance. What I do for a living, you don't have to. If you put just a one percent fee, that four point nine million goes down to three point eight million. Okay. If you then add term insurance costs, because you got to buy term and save the difference. Right. Let's say $2,000 a year or something for a $2 million term or whatever. It might be cheaper at your age, but I'm just, you do that for 20 years. That gets you down to 3.5 million. So 4.9 already goes down to 3.5. Just for the cost of the term insurance, which you need to implement his strategies, I would say successfully. Right. And 1% to hire a professional fiduciary. You don't have to. And then when you add taxes in, by the way, so now 12.59 is down to 9.22. Then when you add in taxes, and if you net the taxes from the account, if you have 28.8 long-term capital gains rate, because you live in a state with a 5% capital gains rate, and you have a twenty, right. and you have a twenty percent federal capital gains rate, and then another three point eight percent Obamacare tax rate, because you're going to be worth three point five million. So when you sell, so these chasing monkeys that he talks about, flying monkeys. I love the analogy. It's a great thing about what happens. Guess how much you have after that? You will then Is have it, it, less than three million. You know why didn't it not? I gotta add it. Yeah, you probably have two point nine. I gotta I gotta net out the tax. Um so if you net out the tax, you net out the expenses. 
you had a cost of money of 3%. I could add, I could add this a little bit more, but basically I think you're down to 2.9. But that's your point of like, there are things that could happen. That's why the, they came up with the 4% rule, by the way, because even in a 12% environment, you can't control. But I, I have to net, um, now check out this. Um, yeah, deferred taxes are 432 grand and another 120. So you'd have 3.4 million, but you would net, I was right, about 2.9. <laughs> nice. Just mentally. Because you'd have about 120 grand in a one-time tax and about 432 in deferred capital gains taxes throughout. That's assuming it's all long-term capital gains treatment. We're not talking dividend paying. So like you bought all Berkshire Hathaway. You bought all some growth mutual fund that didn't pay a dividend. So they do pay dividends and stuff. So now you're down to 2.9 million, which your rate of return goes from 12.59 to 9.07, given one of the best 30-year periods in history. But right, wait, this is an optimistic projection. But wait, let's say you start that projection in the year 2000. Now, we don't have 30 years of stock market history starting from the year 2000. But the whole point is there was a bad stretch beginning. Guess what the rate of return was between 2020 and 2023? So this is when you're 53. It's got to be lower. So so after all the flying monkeys, what, what the equivalent rate would be? Yeah. Is it going to be closer to seven or less? It's shockingly low. 5.3. Why? How so? Well, the first three years of the decade from 2000 to 2002. Now, you could say you're only being negative, geek in your mother's basement. But I did the positive. I did the hope-filled uh, financial version. I did the Dave Ramsey version. That was 12.59. But when you reduced it, it's still about nine and a half. It was 5.31 and your money, you did the great thing. You followed the Dave Ramsey plan. You, you got out of debt because you rediverted. You now have a million dollars at the age of 53. And this is Dave's point. You're still going to be better off than 99% of people. That's what he's trying to say. Get out of your head, geek, <laughs> you know, financial geek. Don't be so worried. I get that. Live your life. I love that aspect. But what's the problem of that? Well, if we're looking at this and we, we stare at just the optimistic side of things and we don't take into account, well, the, the, the realistic what if on the downside, what's, what's the, the, the poor end? You did a good job with it. And we, we only focus on, on the, the top. Well, it's probably going to be this or I hope it's going to be this. Well, we might end up undershooting it if we depend on that projection. And when we get down to the drawdown period, if we're looking at the 8% for the safe withdrawal rate, where we might be basing all of our hope, all of the inspiration that we had to be saving up and dreaming of a, an income in retirement that's going to help us not just survive, but thrive. Well, we might 
we might be disenfranchised by it and we might even tear up our nesting and go broke and have to go back to work. You mentioned you, you have a very personal story that makes this less than just a theoretical conversation, but personal. So if we don't look at the downsides to this, we don't look at the realistic part and we don't do our projections, our plans and adjust as we're going along to match what's been happening, we can fall short and we can end up in a position where we are not able to retire with dignity. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great answer. And I would also say you brought up inflation. We didn't even, we didn't add up inflation. That million will feel like 20, will feel like half a million at 53. Now you'd have a paid off house, which is kind of his point. And you, if you were that guy, you're probably going to be successful in other areas. So I get that point. I had a mentor, his name is Bob Castellone. And he would say, uh, you know how the financial industry talks about running the fear of running out of money. And mm-hmm. his point was kind of like Dave's in that nobody's ever going to run out of money. They're just going to adjust their lifestyle. So if they run out of money, in essence, they would just spend less. It's like when you're young and newly married, you live on you know pork and beans and beans and rice and rice and beans and whatever else. And you don't go out to eat, you, you cut back, but do you really want to, if you were a good, if you were a good little boy and girl in the financial peace university? No, you, you want to have millions. And so I would argue, this is kind of my take. I want to get your question that I would keep the savings rate high and not prepay your mortgage so that you get the higher probability that compounding is on your side. So kind of baby step four trumps baby step six. Am I right? Am I baby step? That would be correct. And that would be, that was the advice Dave gave on the call to his credit was to stay sticking with the 15% and baby step four. Don't try to, to reduce it down. But I would have hoped that in order to get to that answer, we would have been able to take a conservative approach with the safe withdrawal rates thereafter instead of the 8%. Because you have to take into account that less optimistic view, the more, the more realistic view in order to arrive at the, no, you need to keep putting money away so that you know you're going to be able to have that dream retirement. Yeah, and... We didn't even go through what if you were retiring in those periods of history. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. We could do that if you want, but the two million goes under if you go through the 2000 to 2002 case study in like 11 to 14 years, depending on, you know, if you're taking 8%. So I'll do it right now. If you take two million, you subtract 80 grand. Well, no, it's not 80, it's 160, right? So let's say you did it, you survived, you acquired $2 million. Okay. So, and that was his point. I think like four million, three and a half. If you're saving 15, you're gonna get two million. That's actually a valid thing. People get so into their head that they just don't focus on the input, which is really the only thing that matters. Are you saving 10 to 15% diligently? Because mm-hmm. you could put it all in cash. You could put it all on index funds. You could put it all on growth mutual funds. You could put it in this. You could put it in anything virtually. If you put it in 15%, you will probably be 
financially successful. So you don't have to worry and and uh, forego that trip to wherever with your family. Um, now, if you're not saving 10 to 15%, maybe you do forego things. But, um, but let's use this 2 million example. So I'm pulling out 160 grand a year. Okay. With a two grand term insurance cost. I do have some issue with term only, but that'll be another day. Okay. Um, but you got to buy term. And what's funny is that nobody ever calculates as they're doing these modelings is if you did term and you invested the difference, when you are 65 to 85, you will need to be paying two to four grand a year in some type of other thing if you want your money protected from other flying monkeys, such as long-term care. So then you buy long-term care insurance. Then you buy trusts. You have to then pay attorneys. If you don't believe in permanent life insurance you and you really want to bulletproof your money, you do need to do some things to protect your money, which will have some, we'll call it a term cost, but you know your term is expired and you're buying long-term care insurance or something. Now buy right. uh, term insurance is not long-term care insurance is not going to be two grand a year at, at 65. That's another issue, but let's just assume it is for the sake of the illustration. So you retire for 23 year time horizon. So you're 65 in the year 2000 live to your 88. We, we deducted fees. We deducted term. And uh, your money runs out good. And guess how many years? At the 8% withdrawal rate? Yeah, I was actually shocked. It was Ooh. worse than I said. It was, it was probably less than 10 years given the starting in 2000. It was about 10 years. Okay. So in the year 11, close. you'd have nothing. Year 10, you'd have 30 grand. I didn't include taxes just for the sake of whatever. Uh, but if it was taxes, it would probably be a, a year or two less. The whole idea is you cannot, the reason why the 4% rule is important, people, is you cannot control the the first three years the Lord gives you when you retire. And much of these studies hinge on how good your performance is the first three years of retirement. And you cannot control that. What blows my mind when it comes to the early years in retirement being so critical for the survivability for your, your withdrawal rate model. And, and there's, there's something I might want to add to that later, but it's so sensitive that you can tear it up and set yourself up for failure before you even know that you did it. Yeah. If you were too aggressive in those first few years and the markets were to be very unkind to you, and here's the other thing, a lot of people, so this is when I came of age financially, 2000 to 2002, starting my practice in the early 2000s, I'd meet with people, they were, uh, they worked for Lucent and they put all their money in telecom stocks and the million became 100,000 or 50,000. It may have not, the S&P actually did better than their particular stock of choice. And I'm just doing S&P numbers, by the way. I'm not doing other... Um, and that's the other thing, too. Nobody invests in the pure S&P, typically. So it's, it's, 
you know, and most retirees, they might want 20% in bonds or 40% in bonds. They're not going to put everything in the market. And the, the numbers get even worse if you sell in the middle of a downturn, which if you're retired, a lot of these people do sell. Remember, mm-hmm. I, I, I talked, I wrote a book called Retirement Reality Check, Amazon bestseller. And I talk about a guy named, I forget what I called him in the book. I know his real name, but I, I gave him a fake name. And the guy went through two 40% drawdowns in the first 10 years of retirement, 2000, 2002, and 2008. And by the end of 08, he just didn't trust anybody. His million became like 200 grand or 400 grand. Put everything out, he bought, he uh, put it in cash. And what do you do if you're that guy? Then you don't even believe in the markets. And you think it's the market's fault when it's really just you're a victim of bad timing. And you think it's okay you had a bad advisor when in reality you just didn't understand withdrawal rates, basically. And your advisor didn't. Went to the Dave Ramsey School of 8% withdrawal rates, which was a common thing in the late 90s. So that's where I think he got that from. And Bengen kind of showed, I mean, that was the landmark study was 1994, but that was not really well regarded until the middle of the 2000s when all these people lost money in 2000 to 2002. But um, a lot of what he does hinges on like, I, I'm I'm going to venture, this is a guess, nothing scientific, the growth fund of America or like Franklin Templeton mutual funds. Back in the day when I started my practice, you would get these American funds brochures, you know, good and bad, you got to stay with it or Templeton growth fund. And if you put 10,000 in and you did nothing, you could take out 80 grand. So some of these did have that as their like brochure. So I hmm. think that's where he got it from. Because if you follow Ramsey, he had a financial advisor who did his show with him. And it was Ray or Roy Matlack or something. Remember that guy? I Personally, I don't, but uh, I'll take he, your word for it. He was the original co-host. And I venture to say when they did their buy term invest the difference speak, it was sort of like the A.L. Williams Prime America shtick, which he is the kind of heir to. Um, I'm telling you, there were brochures that said this. They've probably been shredded by these companies, but I do remember seeing them. And it was like, if you bought these three funds, you know, you can't lose. Now you can, and if you go back to the numbers that he was using, there was a, um, and we're not recommending you buy or sell this mutual fund, but when he uses the growth mutual fund, he now kind of defaults to the S&P 500, but it was, I believe, sort of the default, like something called the growth fund of America, still around this day. It was around for a hundred years. And there's value in what he's saying. You know, if you invest in the long-term capital equity markets and do nothing for 20, 30 years, you will generally be the recipient of market gains. But I would say it would be fair to use like a seven and a half growth rate or a seven or a six and a half growth rate. 
to be conservative, not 12. Because as my experience working with thousands of retirees, they don't put all of their money in the market. They, they barely put 60% of their money in the market, no matter how you try to convince them. Because if you're that guy, Jay, you did what you were supposed to do and you have 2 million bucks when you're 60, you might say, you know what? I'm going to take some chips off the table. I won the game of life. You know, so I, I think it's so funny because what is being counted as harmful advice, which it is, was in the middle of really good advice at the end. So, um, but I don't think they'll hear that. I, I don't get the it, sense that they'll care what we say. I've, I've got a question for you as far as a critique goes when, and I've, I've, I think I've heard this one on the Ramsey show or, or from Dave. It's when, when you're talking about a safe withdrawal rate and you're doing the projection, you're using it to try to establish what is it that I'm trying to hit in order to, to say, oh, I can retire now, right? This is able to sustain this income. I've, I've heard it said, well, no one's actually going to exactly take out the percentage that we do using the model. It's going to change. It's going to vary. There are going to be flying monkeys that hit in retirement. Is it, in your opinion, if for someone like me and I'm looking at this, can I look at the studies that look at different percentages and show relative risks and percent and chances, be it a Monte Carlo simulation or a back check and say, well, I know that this withdrawal rate for this model, be it with a maybe a financial guardrail or a consistent dollar method, I know that it probably, given these assumptions, has this risk represented to it. So oh, I'm not oh, going yeah. to exceed this yeah. risk as long as I don't get up to it. So it's like, this is kind of my boundary. It's not like I'm going to take this out every year, but this is my limit. So I kind of give myself a window for what I'm looking at and use that as my guidance with an advisor in retirement, as opposed to trying to follow by some rigid rule. Cause it's not that the, these things are not so rigid and we, life isn't rigid. We just don't have a way to model accurately everything that is unknown because we don't have a crystal ball, but we can give ourselves like bumpers to, to represent reality in our limits and then try to solve the problem within those boundaries. Is, is that an accurate way that I'm thinking about that? Yeah, we have our own software. I'll, we could show you one time. We do maybe a YouTube on it where you could do financial planning guardrails. You could do retirement spending stages. You could do retirement bell curves, retirement spending smile. And the smile is basically you spend more in the earlier years of retirement because you're having fun. Then your spending kind of goes down actually because you've done the trip to Alaska, you bought the new car, you're not putting as much wear and tear in your cars. And then the upward piece of the smile is the end of life issues. But you got to factor in if you bought term invested difference and, and, and I'm, I'm assuming Dave would have some answer like, oh, well, you know, those people are just trying to scare you. You don't really need to spend money on trusts and you don't need to spend money on long term care insurance. You know what? I'm sure he does trusts. I'm sure he does sophisticated estate planning. Um, so I don't. I, and this is interesting, by the way, if you could pull this clip, because I always want to, I want to get this clip. 
I know because I rarely listen to him, but I turned it on once and I heard him give a very honest shoot from the hip thing when somebody asked him about life insurance and he went on with his whole life tirades. But then he said, I still have life insurance because my wife wants it. That has since changed. Not too long ago, he, 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 cause he said it, fi- he filed the life insurance that he had on Sharon as SWI. She wants it. And for years he said that. I want that. Uh, clip. Yeah. He had it as a part of Financial Peace University. Okay. I know, I know that clip lives in there. I've got it on a scene. But I want that clip because here's the thing. If he's worth 500 million or whatever he's worth, I guarantee he has massive amounts of estate planning life insurance. He may even have $500 million of life insurance, which would be funny. Um, and that I would like him to recant. Now, maybe he doesn't, but he could, he could be very consistent. But I know of no one other than Joe Robbie. You ever hear the story about Joe Robbie? I have not. My biggest critique on Ramsey is his opinion on life insurance, coupled with the now this 4% rule. I didn't even know he believed in the 8% rule. I thought he was a 4% proponent. Um, and I followed him. It's just I don't have time to watch every video or show. So April, so. Joe Robbie was the former owner of the Miami Dolphins. And he lost their family. The Robbie family lost the Miami Dolphins because he did not have life insurance. They had to sell the Dolphins to liquidate for the estate tax. Hmm. I just doubt he would be that dumb to not have estate planning life insurance to provide liquidity to the estate so they don't have to sell the Meaning if his empire is worth 500 million, because a lot of it's in the campus, because they bought at the right time, Tennessee blew up, that corporate park's probably worth $100 million at a minimum. Um, He's not going to want to sell that for the good of his employees. So I just right. guarantee you is, he's a state planning life insurance owned by trusts that are off the radar of of... of the government, you know, they're, I mean, it's legal, but they're kind of, he doesn't want people to know his business. I, I doubt he would build a $500 million net worth or billion dollar net worth and lose it all to estate taxes. I just doubt that, you know, he would do that. Uh, he doesn't. I, but back to the, he files the life insurance under SWI. I think he, he publicly said that he no longer has life insurance on, on his wife. But, and I think he said he still doesn't have any life insurance on him not too long ago. I don't know, have the reference for it, but he no longer says it's under SWI. He convinced her that they don't need it anymore. And she hmm. was able to, to let go of that. So Did the, he say the, he never had it on himself? I don't know if I can say for sure. See, My that's what not, I think. Not, not I think he's me. threading a delicate needle so he doesn't, you know, it's sort of like omitting something. I just don't see why he wouldn't have a massive amount of life insurance to pay the estate tax. That's what wealthy people do, like super wealthy people. I have no, I know of nobody north of a certain amount of money that doesn't have lots and gobs and gobs of permanent life insurance 
to pay the estate tax when they die. It's just what state planning attorneys recommend. So I think I, I I would venture to say he does, but we'll see. I would love him to give an answer to that because I I don't think that I don't think that's responsible. Like if you're making fifty grand a year, yeah, you have no business buying a whole life, uh, maybe, maybe a small amount or whatever. But um, buy term investment makes sense for certain people in certain income brackets. But once you hit over a certain net worth, you need that to provide liquidity to the estate in the event of your estate tax. Just there's nothing else that does what life insurance does. That's why he might have gone kicking and screaming because he doesn't like the cost. But it's the only way to avoid estate. Or, I mean, you're not avoiding estate taxes. You're paying it. But why would he want to liquidate all that real estate that he loves to pay the estate tax? Now, by the way, a lot of wealthy people over the years, there have been founding members of McDonald's. There have been, Ray Kroc had life insurance, but there were other of the early franchisers or franchisees, whatever. I always screw it up. Who, if you were an early franchise of McDonald's, you got a lot of money. And those guys are worth a lot of money and they lost a lot in estate tax because they were regular people. They didn't trust life insurance and they didn't have the estate planning attorneys. They didn't have the, the know-how. So I've met very wealthy people who were kind of simple, maybe like Dave, and didn't like it because they thought the insurance was screwing them. And then they had a $50 million tax bill and then their kids. So if Dave doesn't have it, I bet you Rachel will someday. But um, even Buckley uh, Broadcasting, the so we're on WR, which was the Dave Ramsey flagship for his show for a number of years. He had a show every day. I'm, I'm, I'm around. He kind of has since kind of moved on, but I'm still on WR on a weekly basis. The Buckley brought, family had to sell to Clear Channel because of the estate tax issue. So, um, allegedly, you know, you know, but um. And, and But that's due to a wealthy wealth pioneer not really understanding the nuances of estate planning. So maybe he is 100% congruent in his message. But I, then- I, I think he typically says, and I, I have no reason to doubt that he doesn't consistently follow what it is that he shares with the exception of maybe this 8% thing, because he mentioned it in the rant going back to the call that he he's, you know, in his sixties and he's taking out nothing because he's still working and he doesn't need to. And I think that might be an interesting thing to think about is he doesn't have to think about a very detailed, am I going to, you know, destroy my nest egg because he's got enough money that it would be very hard for him to pull out enough to destroy his nest egg in, in his lifetime. It's more oh, of a yeah. legacy. It'll never. The estate planning yeah. thing. So he doesn't have to sit down and think about it like someone who, uh, for his own personal case, who who is like, I'm on the cusp of, am I going to make it or not? I'm very much so in the risk zone when it comes to those first three years of retirement. Uh, what, what kind of relative risks do I need to be considering when I'm sitting down with a financial professional there? And you, you mentioned you want him to possibly, if, if he does have, the the money in in the estate planning insurance maybe come out and mention that well with with the eight percent thing 
in the safe withdrawal rate stuff, do you think he's going to change his mind, come out and say, maybe I was wrong or look at the evidence from, from everything that the, the super nerds unite against Dave Ramsey movement, if you will, has, has put out there. Do you think that would be something that would help him with his legacy and help him with his image after this all blew up? I think it would. I think you've brought up on other YouTubes that I've seen that Dave Ramsey has not hosted the show since this That's rant. That's true. I, I didn't um, check today, but I don't think he was on And today. I'm looking, and um, it looks like a, a young woman is uh, hosting with George. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But, um, you know... So I don't know if that's his answer. Like, hey, I love George. I'm going to be kind to him and let him host, you know, for a month and let it blow down. I think they're probably hiring some PR firm and saying, what do we do? What do, what do we, mm. how do we respond? You know, do well, we, one, do we well, fight back or we let it blow over? Yeah. Well, and one thing that's interesting is he took down the article I brought up, but he didn't take down George's video. George's video is still up there on YouTube. The one where he, he has a more conservative study that shows 3% withdrawal rate is what's appropriate for a 30-year time horizon. And if you read the fine print on it, it, it assumes that you have a lower than average historical return on your investments and even a 30% bond, 70% stock mix throughout that time horizon. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I don't know what why they're doing what they're doing. I I probably I could see them make some apology to George, you know, like, hey, I was a little rough on George. Sorry, George. Just want to ask your forgiveness or something. Um, I could see that. I think that would be the right thing to do. Um, but will he? I, I have no clue. And I don't they, really they, care. The thing I care about is the eight percent rules bad advice. <laughs> I think the whole community, everyone, almost everyone agrees with that. I should I should add, it's interesting to note, Dave Ramsey's team, the, the screener, called me back after I hung up from the, the call to ask me the title of George's video. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you, you heard me tell that part of the story yet, but they called me back and said, what was the name of the video? I told them the name of the video and they said, in the video, George is just explaining what fire is. He doesn't give a critique on what you should do to achieve fire or anything with safe withdrawal rates. And I think that's, that's not the way that I interpreted the video, but it's possible that that was what was passed on internally. And that might be why the video is still up, but I'm not sure because I, I think that's an incongruent way of interpreting the, the clip. I think it's good to have the contradiction stand. I think the video should stand. I think George's clip should stand. Your clip should stand. Why does everybody have to agree with each other at their firm? Why can't there be different planning perspectives? Because then you could conceivably make each other better. And maybe for maybe it's a branding thing for Ramsey Solutions, but I believe in what you're saying, that contradictions and arguments and debate help us develop our opinions and hone in on what is a genuine truth for the good of all those who are listening. So having different opinions and presenting those different opinions could be really healthy, even if it's not consistent for the brand. Yeah, but I, I would probably say the consistency of the brand is very important to them. So maybe that's why they did it. Um, we, we have to conclude. I want you to uh, give me uh, your 60 second parting shot. 
Well, I am very grateful that you invited me on the show first and foremost. It's still my goal and will be that Dave hopefully can come back on this 8% thing. And even if he doesn't publicly announce, you know, I'm going back on it, maybe shift the way that he presents that advice in the future so that it's more conservative and less likely to be dangerous to the viewers. I am going to continue doing what I do with the Hopefield Financial Podcast. I'm going to continue doing what I do with Hopefield Financial Coaching. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share that ministry with you and your listeners. And uh, it, it's been an absolute blessing to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Jay Disberger of Hope Filled Financial. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.